So why don't we pass these around? Um, and in there, actually, I'll take one of them so I can follow. OK. So you just have a description of what we're going to be doing in the course, um, what our objectives are, my contact information if you need to email if you have any questions, or you could text or call. That's fine, too. The, the course material, these are all these books here. Um, this one by Barrick, he's a professor at the seminary that Dan and Jeremy went to. Um, this is a real good kind of summary book. It's not very thick. Um, so Alex, I think you could even read this one. So um, this Jay Adams is kind of more a counseling approach to Ecclesiastes, which is also good. It's definitely not exegetical by any means, but it's, it's practical. Um, and there's just some other ones. This is the primary source that I'm going to be working from, I guess you could say. Um, this is um, a guy named uh, Ginsburg. I always forget that. Um, this one's a little older. It's from the 1800s or so. But it is, it's a good, uh, <clears throat> he translates it as you go. So he translates the entire book, and then he has comments on it. So if you ever need to borrow this, you're welcome to. Uh, I've already gone through it. And um, <clears throat> so th that's the material. If you want, if you guys want to look through these as we're going or you want to borrow them, like I said, let me know and you could bring it home. Um, let's see. The, the main focus, though, in the class will be, uh, obviously, on Ecclesiastes itself. So... We'll be looking at the text. Today's a little bit different because it's an introduction. Um, so I'm just going to cover some topics, the purpose of the book, structure of the book, things like that. So why don't I will pass these around. These are some questions for you to think about. So each class I'll have... Oh, sure. Thank you. Um, each class I will have some questions for everyone to go through. Um, and the purpose of that is not obviously to get a grade or something like that, but it's really just to focus your thinking, um, give it some, <clears throat> some direction. So why don't I pray, and then I'll start off by reading the first couple of chapters, and then we can start going through the, the uh, questions. And Stacy can just keep passing out while we're praying. That's fine. Father, thank you again for the time that we have this morning to look at your word, to examine our hearts, and to think how we might um, put off our sin and put off our weaknesses and seek to uh, glorify you and grow in our image of you. In Christ's name, amen. Okay. So, uh, let me start off by reading <clears throat> chapters 1 and 2, and you can follow along. This is an ESV translation. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. I'm going to pause there for a second. I have these two questions. They're just kind of what I'd call application questions. They're for you to think about, or for all of us to think about as we're doing our study today. So one question is, what do you think worldliness is? What is worldliness? 
another question is, why do you think Solomon used vapor or breath to characterize life? Here, translated vanity. What are some ramifications of viewing life this way? And uh, what's the difference between vapor and vanity? How are those two words different? Okay, I'll keep moving on. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity, for the wise... For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. 
This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Okay, so that is the first section of the book. Um, And each day, or not each day, each class day, let me put it that way, we will um, read through the section that we're studying for that day, and then um, I'll have some of the questions, the application questions for you to think through. And then what I'd like to do is read chunk by chunk and just kind of give you a summary of that chunk, and then we can piece it together uh, to come up with the purpose of that section. Okay, so for today, uh, the title, Ecclesiastes, does anyone know where that comes from already? Probably some of you do, where we get the title Ecclesiastes. Okay, Um, it comes from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, And the Hebrew title is Koaleth, which is uh, what I put on the outline here. That's also what he called, and they get the name um, from this first chapter where he calls himself the preacher. So he says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So that word is, the root of it is, Call. I'm not a Hebrew expert by any means, so I'm just reading from you <laughs> from the book. But the 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 root there is call, similar to kaleo in Greek uh, or to call in English, and it means to call or to call together, to assemble, to collect. That's the idea behind that word. Um, the precise signification is a matter of great contention, according to its, uh, so, and the difficulty consists in three, trying to answer three different questions. So, for example, the question we're trying to answer is, why does he call himself that? Why does he call himself Koaleth? What's the purpose, right? He doesn't just say Solomon. He, in fact, he never mentions his name Solomon in the book, So there are some people who actually say Solomon didn't write it, someone else did. I think it's pretty obviously written by Solomon, and we'll look at that. Um, But the questions, the three questions, and this is just kind of an overview of the idea. Um, What did Solomon collect? What does he, why does he bear this name here? And how came it to be in the feminine gender? So it's in a feminine gender, and the question we want to answer is, why is it in feminine? What is it doing here? Um, Why would he call himself this? And um, what did he collect? Okay, what's the significance of him saying, calling himself the assembler or the collector? Um, So to answer the first question, we will, um, why don't we look up a few verses Uh, These are going to be verses that have a similar, the same word used in a different context. So uh, let's see, if someone could read Exodus 32.1, Scott, could you read that for us? And then Leviticus 8.9, or sorry, Leviticus 8.4, Alex, would you be so kind? And then Owen... Numbers 16.3. And these are all uh, verses that use the same word. So this will give us an idea of how the word is used. Okay? Scott? 32.1? Yes. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together as Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. Okay. That's fine. So they're being gathered, right? And so what is being gathered there? Yeah, people, right? Okay. So then um, Alex, 8.4, Leviticus 8.4. Okay. 
So there it's translated assembled, but same word in Hebrew. And what's being gathered there? People. Okay. Um, Numbers 16.3. Owen? They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you, do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Okay. So there again, what's being assembled is people. Okay. So every single use of that word is the gathering of people. So that's what we're going to say um, is, okay, so let me just read this here. The verb is invariably used for collecting or gathering persons, especially for religious purposes. Those are just three examples that we looked at. Also, the derivatives of this verb, without exception, denote assemblies or gatherings of people. So he's the gatherer of people. That's the idea. And we'll see later that um, it's, it's an assembler of scattered people into the more immediate presence of God or gathering those from afar unto God. Um, yes. It's just, it could be either. I mean, it's just the collection of people or the gathering of people. So we gather on Sunday, we might gather some friends together and go do something, but it might be mandatory, it might be something else. But the purpose or the, the significance is that it's a gathering of people. It's not, he's not the gatherer of sayings or ideas, right? He's a gatherer of people, okay? Um, <clears throat> so that is to address the, the first question, which is, what is it that he's collecting or gathering? He's gathering people. There is a, an extensive explanation in Ginsburg's commentary on um, why it's not preacher, which is how Ecclesiastes, uh, or sorry, how the ESV translates it. A brief summary of that um, is that Solomon was never spoken of as a preacher in Scripture. And in 12.9, where we're told that Coaleth taught the people wisdom, this no more proves that Solomon was a preacher than referencing Deuteronomy 4.5, where we're told that Moses taught the people or where the Israelites themselves were commanded to teach their children. Um, so it, it really just, it's a phrase that simply means to impart knowledge or to inform. And uh, <clears throat> the second question that we're trying to answer is, why does he bear this name here? Why would he call himself Coleth? Uh, what's, what's the purpose? And um, Ginsburg's answer to that is that it is descriptive of the design of the book, and it connects his labors here with his work recorded in 1 Kings 8. I will... Uh, read that really quickly. First Kings eight, one and twelve. And this is when Solomon builds the temple. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And then in verse 12, then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. So, this is where all the people are assembled for the temple that he built. And the suggested reason for why he would call himself the, the assembler or the gatherer is because he's doing the same thing here that he did when he um, assembled people before the temple. Um, <clears throat> and that is 
a gathering of people to hold communion with the Most High in the place which he erected for this purpose is here again represented as the gatherer. His third, the third reason or the third question, how is it that it came, that it's in the feminine gender? Um, and again, Ginsburg's answer to this is because Solomon personifies wisdom who herself appears in Proverbs 10 and 8, 1, etc., as Koalath or the gatherer of the people. So in other words, Koalath appears in the feminine because it is referring to the personified wisdom as the gatherer of the people from afar into a closer communion with the Most High. There's a, many, many pages on that. I'm just giving you a brief summary so you're aware of um, the issue. Okay. This will be kind of a fun exercise, this next bit. So it's generally agreed that Solomon is described by this appellation or this designation, Koaleth. Um, and we want to figure out how we get there. Yeah, Scott. Uh, wisdom is personified as feminine. Is that throughout the Bible? Is that primarily in Proverbs? Once again, giving evidence that this is Solomon writing. So the, the reasoning would be like, like a ship is referred to as a female, right? We kind of we don't really have gender in that sense for nouns, but in other languages they do. So wisdom is of the feminine gender, just it, like that's just the gender it's in. Okay, so all, what he's saying is Solomon, who's the personification of wisdom, is what's being referred to. Therefore, it's in the feminine gender. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Did that answer your question? Okay. <clears throat> okay, so let's. Did you guys see anything in the first chapter that might indicate who the author was? Okay, so we know he's the son of David, right? But that. So was Jesus. Okay, king. So we know he's a king. We know we don't have a whiteboard. And we know that he's the son of David, right? What else do we learn? So that's, let's just say verse 1 and verse 12 are the two keys there. Yeah, in, in the back. Okay. Okay. Verse 12, though. Do you see any, like, indications there of who it might be? Yeah, king over Israel in, in Jerusalem. Okay. That is significant because anyone know why that might be? Significant? He's king over Israel in Jerusalem. Yeah, and we'll we're gonna look at a couple of verses just to um, to show that. So, Jake, would you look at two Samuel five five, and let's see. Anyone else willing to read a couple of verses? <clears throat> Dr. Steve, thank you for volunteering. Um, would you be so kind as to look up 1 Kings 11? Oh, you don't have a Bible? No, I do. Okay. For 1 Kings 11, 41 and 42. So, Jake, yours is talking about David reigning in Jerusalem over Israel. Would you read that one? At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. 
Yeah, so remember when he first had his kingdom, not everyone was joined together. So he's ruling in Hebron for several seven years, and then later he rules in Jerusalem over all Israel. Okay. Um, doc, well, Dr. Steve looks that up. There's another one if um, someone could take it. 1 Kings 11, 26 to 35. Thanks, Zach. And Steve, would you get um, 1 Kings 12, 16 to 20? Okay, Dr. Steve. Okay, so Solomon rules in Jerusalem over all Israel. Okay, um, Zach? Uh, 11, 26 to 35. So for, I guess I'm assuming a certain thing. So Saul is our first king, right? Then we have David after Saul, and then Solomon, and then it starts fracturing from there. Okay, um, Zach? Okay, so let me, let's pause right there. So Solomon is not being totally faithful to the Lord, right? So, okay, keep going. That part, that's part of this is that judgment. Okay, so there Jeroboam is told that he's going to receive 10 tribes. One's going to remain <clears throat> with, uh, with Solomon's son. Okay, so then we see that... Um, uh, Steve, you want to read that next one? <clears throat> So, sorry, I, 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 I'm assuming a lot here, I realize, as you're reading that. <laughs> so, after Solomon's reign, Rehoboam, his son, is going to reign, okay? But then <clears throat> he's not a good king, and so people start rebelling, and this is where you can see that rebellion and that fracture start to happen. So, go ahead. <clears throat> Who 
forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. When King Rehoboam hurried them down to straits to flee to Jerusalem, so Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent to call him to the assembly to make him king over all of Israel. Uh, there was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah. Okay, so what that means is that at this point, um, Jeroboam is ruler over Israel, and Rehoboam, who's Solomon's son, is reigning over Judah in Jerusalem. <clears throat> that makes sense? So from that point on, Jerusalem is part of Judah. So there's no king ruling over Israel in Jerusalem. Solomon was the last king reigning over all Israel in Jerusalem. Does that make sense? So Jerusalem then, to say that <clears throat> he's the son of David, king in Jerusalem, and that he's king over Israel in Jerusalem, really that's only Solomon. Follow the argument? Okay. So... The, with those two verses, you could show that this the author is at least claiming that he's Solomon. <clears throat> okay. Um, any questions on that? No? Okay. The outline of the book is, it's divided into four sections. Um, section one, which... Incidentally, is on your course outline. Um, you'll have the, these are actually going to be our courses. So we have our introduction to the course, which is today. And then section one, section two. And the reading, if you look at the reading for each section, it'll say, say for section one, it says Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 2, 26. That is the entire section. So the division is there as well, um, but I'm going <clears> to, <throat> I'll just read them off. Section 1 is Ecclesiastes 1.1 1, 1 to 2.26. Section 2 is 3.1 to 5.20. Uh, section 3 is 6.1 to 8.15. And section 4 is 8.16 to the end. And the, the sections are indicated by the recurrence of the same formula ending with the results of each experiment or examination of a particular effort to obtain real happiness for the craving soul. Okay, so the idea is he's going to experiment with certain things to see if they give him contentment, happiness, joy of a lasting nature, and then he gives the result of that experiment at the end of the section. So that's the pattern of each section. Um, so let's we can look at <clears throat> we can look at that real quick. Um, or let, let me show you one thing first, though. The introduction and the epilogue, or yes, the prologue. Let's say prologue and epilogue both begin with the same phrase. So you could see in chapter one, verse one, the words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then, as long as I wrote the right verses down, the epilogue begins with the same phrase, which is um, chapter 12, verse 8. Let's see what that one says. Okay, so it's, it's uh, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. So that's verse 2 here. Um, in chapter one, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. <clears throat> That's the marker of the beginning of the prologue and the beginning of the epilogue. And they end with two, what he calls two marked sentences. So that is chapter one, verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. That's the end of the prologue. And then the end of the epilogue, 
chapter 12, verse 8. No, sorry, I read the wrong one. Chapter 12, verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Okay? So, there are also three fundamental truths taught in Ecclesiastes. The first truth, these are also in Barak's book, if you end up getting those. Uh, Jeremy told me that he got a couple of these. Uh, so they're in the bookstore. I think there's also one in the library if you want to get this one. Um, the th first fundamental truth is eat, drink wine, enjoy life, accept your lot, train yourself to enjoy work, but be aware of coming judgment. Um, <clears throat> so we can see that in a couple of verses here, 2.24. There is nothing better for a person than that, they, than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. And 3.12 to 13, I'm not going to read them all, but just this is like a sampling. There's, it's scattered throughout. Um, 3.12 to 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And I have, I actually, the outline that I'm reading from, I printed up some extra copies and I figured you guys could take them home if, if you're interested. So all the verses and details that I'm talking about are, are written down, and there's, there's more details here. I'm just sort of skimming it. So that's the first fundamental truth is God has given you life to enjoy. Part of being grateful for that is enjoying it and appreciating it um, without losing sight of the fact that there's a coming judgment. Truth number one. Truth number two, God's sovereignty is all pervasive and is meant to humble us and make us fear. Um, that would be in chapter 2, verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So um, <clears throat> that's the second truth. The third truth is the wise subject themselves to God's sovereignty in all aspects and do not grow weary of doing good. So the first question um, I think here is what, how, well, actually it's the last question. How's the first truth that I just read different from the concept of carpe diem or just enjoy life? How is it different if, if, if you see it as different? <clears throat> Eat, drink wine, enjoy life, accept your lot train yourself to enjoy work. How is that different than the worldly view of just enjoy your life because you're going to die tomorrow? It's complete. The carpet is. Okay. It, it stops it. Okay, we die. So enjoy your time here. Okay. Or anything like the modern phrase is, I mean, actually, I don't know how modern this is. But today, but YOLO, you only live once. Oh, Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's got an Epicurean idea of just seeking ultimate pleasure all the time. You know, that's that's summarizing that Yolo statement. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true. Um, there's, an, there's another sense here that that you guys are talking about that it's that's an incomplete worldview because it doesn't take into account the fact that there is an eternity afterwards, that this really is your only life or and you only live once in that sense. But this is sort of a, um, 
a minor thing compared to our life in eternity. However, our life here does impact eternity. So it does matter in a tremendous way, right? It's not just about enjoyment. The other thing is accepting your lot. I, I think at least of this Epicurean idea is pleasure. And that could have a lot of different forms, but Solomon stresses throughout the importance of diligent work, hard work, um, but also seeing the good in your toil. And that is 224. He says, <clears throat> there is nothing better for a person than, it, than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. So the idea is really training your mind to see the good in your work. And I don't know for you if that's a struggle. Um, it depends on the work you're doing, I suppose. But really, the idea here is train yourself to see the good in that work. Train yourself to see the blessing of work instead of just sitting around and drinking or watching TV or whatever. If you were purely dedicated to this Epicurean idea, you wouldn't necessarily do hard work. <laughs> you know, it's sort of contradictory in a sense. But what he's saying is toil is our lot. We're, we have to toil. And part of our responsibility and job is to work at seeing the good in it, recognizing it as good. Um, so for, for you, that might look differently. For me, that is, say, reminding myself before I go to work, it's of the good things about my job, right? It's good to be challenged. It's good to grow and mature. It's good for me to have money so that we could pay the bills. It's good for me to be responsible and go and do so all the things that I have to remind myself of, and I'm sure some of you do as well, that is this idea of training yourself to see the good in your toil. And of course, as you all know, toil is, is hard, sweaty labor. That's the idea. Um, so it's not something that you necessarily like. It's not something that's necessarily pleasant to your fleshly <clears throat> body, okay? Um, okay, any questions on that? Okay, so we've got basically how is it different from Carpe Diem 1? We're learning to appreciate and recognize that we do have work to do. Um, two, that our enjoyment of things on this planet or under the sun is all in the context of an eternity coming. Okay, so some definitions to look at as we go through um, the book <clears throat> is vanity of vanities. Um, so the phrase vanity of vanities, uh, vanity of vanities, all is van. So in if you, here's the difference. I'm just going to stop for a second. In Ginsburg, he translates the entire uh, book of Ecclesiastes. And here's how he phrases that. Um, this is his translation. Vanity of vanities, saith Coaleth, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So that in um, your ESV is preacher, says the preacher, but that's, that's the word Coaleth. So the construct vanity of vanities expresses the superlative degree, um, in other words, utter or absolute vanity, and the repetition of the same phrase, vanity of vanities, a second time gives the highest intensity to the statement. Does anyone have an ESV uh, with footnotes in it? Stephen, you want to read um, uh, that footnote on verse 2? Uh, vanity of vanities is a Hebrew way of expressing uh, 
preacher is here serving you verbally to uh, encourage the reader to face the vanity of life uh, elsewhere in the book. Um, is finding satisfaction is the opposite of frustration in life. I presume that the reader will understand not just reflect life is enough. Okay, so you probably have like a study Bible or something. Okay. Um, yeah, my note was quite a bit shorter, but <laughs> same idea, same idea. Um, so that it's a good, uh, this brings up our question, which is, what do you, what is significant in the use of the term? Well, actually, I'd, I'd rather, I'd like to rephrase it. What do you think is different between, what do you think the difference is between using the term vanity and what Stephen said there, it's concretely vapor or breath. That's what it means. They're interpreting it, vanity is, a, is an abstraction. What, what's the difference between thinking about breath and vapor on the one hand or vanity on the other? Question so, make? <clears throat> vanity to me would be more inward looking at you know, appearance, whereas mist and Pleading vapor would be more, you're just clouded for judgment. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Other ideas? Mist and vapor is, is a temporary thing. It's here and it's gone. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and a breath, you're breathing, you're breathing and it's cold, I can see the breath and it's gone. The breath is also our life. I mean, what was it that the God breathed into Adam? The breath of life. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Jen? the breath and vapor are very concrete. There's something you can actually see, um, and they exist. Vanity is uh, more an, an abstraction, right? It's sort of a judgment on an action, but it's not a concrete thing. Whereas vapor and breath, you can actually visualize and see. Um, so the way... <clears throat> The way, and this is in this book, <laughs> Kidner. Um, nothingness and vanity are abstractions, and he argues they're not consistent with Solomon's vocabulary, who uses concrete ideas, steam, vapor, breath, to convey that which is insubstantial and transient or tr intransigent. So, or actually not intransigent. I don't know why I wrote that. That's like stubborn. Um, so if you think about it, there's two aspects to vapor or breath. One aspect is that, as we've heard, it's fleeting. It doesn't last very long. You could think of your breath on a cold morning. Another aspect to it is it's not substantial even while it is here, right? There are things that are concrete and stable, but they don't last very long. So he's pointing out two things. One, not only does it not last long, but two, there's not a lot of substance to it, right? It's just empty. Um, so <clears throat> I'll, I'll read his quote here. There are two elements to vapor, one that it's fleeting in time, and two that it is insubstantial while it does last. Alter, this some book here, uh, suggests that breath is a better translation for, quote, the writer uses concrete metaphors to indicate general concepts, constantly exploiting the emotional impact of the concrete images to express several related ideas. Havel, or breath, or vapor, is something utterly insubstantial and transient, and this book suggests futility and ephemerality. All is mere breath. This establishes one of the principal themes of the book, namely that it is the very nature of reality for all things constantly to repeat themselves 
and that this repetition highlights man's transience and powerlessness to change anything substantial. Um, which really, if you think about sort of the idea of teen angst, for lack of a better term, it really, that's what it's centered around. Like, what's the purpose? Why, why am I here? What does it matter? Is, it's sort of the search for something of significance, which is battling this thing that Solomon's pointing out, which is inherent in life, which is if all you're looking at is our life here on earth, it is insubstantial um, and it's unsatisfying. And that's inherently true. Um, Another definition for a phrase, striving after the wind, which Solomon uses repeatedly, um, alter, alter, okay, that's this one. He does the same thing as Ginsburg. He translates um, Ecclesiastes and then he has a bunch of comments on it. He states that it should be translated hurting the wind which is a funny picture if you think about trying to herd the wind like you might herd cattle. Um, the verbal root of the first Hebrew word here generally means to tend a flock um, and, and in the Song of Solomons to graze, Song of Songs, sorry, uh, to graze. So herding the wind, which of course cannot be herded, it goes around and around, is an effective image conveying futile activity coordinated with mere breath. This also captures the idea of the futility of controlling, organizing, or managing nature or its cycles. Um, so similar ideas uh, that convey the same thing. It's a futile struggle, if you will. Futile. Not futile. Okay. Um, under the sun, that's another expression um, that Solomon uses. Chapter 2, verse 11 is one instance of that. Is that right? 2.11. Yes. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So that expression, under the sun, the question is, you know, what does that mean? Uh, Barak, in his book, says, under the sun provides the most common expression for limiting the viewpoint to man's perspective. Another phrase, under heaven, occurs only three times in the book, and in all three occurrences, Solomon speaks indirectly of God's involvement. But that expression under the sun is used to limit your view to this earth. Or another way of phrasing it would be to not consider heaven or eternity, but rather just thinking about things here. So a lot of times as we go through the book, you'll see Solomon recommending things or saying things, explaining things from that perspective. That does not mean that it is his overall conclusion. Um, so, for example, just that one that I read, there is nothing to be gained under the sun. We know that's not true in terms of eternal reward, right? So he's not saying that, but what he's saying is all these things I did changed nothing here. I gained nothing. Um, <clears throat> okay. Uh, it, another way of thinking about it might be to look at the world through man's eyes only. Okay, now the purpose statement of the book is, as we've kind of hinted at already, to gather God's people by showing failure of human efforts to obtain, I'm going to just read the whole thing, but it's a basic idea. Gather God's people by showing failure of human efforts to obtain real happiness, which cannot be secured by wisdom, pleasure, work, wealth, etc., but consists in calm enjoyment of life, trusting God's sovereignty and future justice, which will rectify imbalance now. So it's kind of a mouthful, but the idea is essentially that <clears throat> nothing that we do here on earth 
gaining wisdom, pleasure, work, whatever it is, will satisfy us. Will not it will not truly give us any lasting happiness. This is this is only secured by calmly enjoying life, trusting God's sovereignty and his future justice, which will rectify um, the imbalances that we see now. So the reason that he has that last point in there is because there are several, and another purpose in writing Ecclesiastes is that really in the Old Testament, you don't see that picture of a total imbalance during your life. So for example, um, Job is one example where he experiences a lot of hardship and difficulty, but then what happens to him at the end of the book? You guys remember? Yeah, so yeah, life was rough for a while, but then it got better. Um, and he was righteous. So the idea that a righteous person could go their entire life suffering and not receiving good in return is not really a picture you see in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes is an exception to that. He talks about situations where people go their entire life and they're living righteously and yet they're killed or abused like you'd expect the wicked to be. And that the wicked, who should be judged and condemned, according to what you read in the Old Testament, aren't. They're successful, and they go their entire life successfully. So part of the idea in Ecclesiastes is it provides an explanation for why that might be. Um, and that's that God's future justice will rectify that imbalance that you sometimes see in earth, so or on earth. And that is um, one of the purposes in Ecclesiastes as well is to deal with that issue that you don't really see in the Old Testament. Um, okay, and the method, this is our last point, the method that by which he does this is he demonstrates by example, both in his own life and in concrete displays of common experiences. Ecclesiastes is not a philosophical discourse like you'd get in Romans or a book like that. He's not talking about ideas. He's looking at concrete things that happen in life and piecing it together, um, coming up with conclusions based on what he's seen in his own experience and others' experiences. Um, so next week... I'd like to talk about the, uh, the first lesson that's not an introduction. Is um, we I'd, I'd like to talk about the idea of vapor or breath. So that will be that'll be our lesson next time. And you do have on your course outline, you do have each week or each section at the end of it. Is are the lessons that we'll be covering. So, for example, next week you can see uh, under introduction to course at the bottom, vapor. That's what we'll be talking about next time. And then under sections, each other, a subsequent section, you see the lessons that we'll have each time. So, have a look over that. If it should have the text that we're looking at and also the lesson that we'll be talking about. So, if you guys have any other um, comments or whatever on that topic, come prepared to, to talk about it. Any questions for, for the introduction here? Or questions about the operation of the class or how things will go or anything like that? No? Okay. Um, so, One thing to think about before our next class, then I'll, I'll pray and we can close, is like we talked about today, vapor, those two aspects to it, it's insubstantial nature and it's fleeting nature. Those two things, the question will be, um, what, 
what errors could result in our behavior if we are not properly viewing life in that way? If we start to think that life will last forever, or if we start to think that life is, has a lot of substance and meaning beyond you know, the obvious. So those are things to think about uh, for next time. So as you're reading through, hopefully that um, will help. And if there's no questions, then I'll, I'll pray. Father, I thank you again for the word that you've given to us. We thank you for the wisdom that you have revealed to us. And I pray that you would continue to guide us in our study of your word and in Ecclesiastes in particular, that you would um, encourage people to read and think through your word, that this would be a time to discuss it and to be enriched by it. I pray that you would also use your word to humble us and to show us how we might grow and mature. In Christ's name, amen.